Well, it's already been a great morning here at Sunrise. So much enjoyed being able to be a part of Lucas's story with Luca, Lucas and Hugo and family here. Uh, just such a celebration of seeing someone commit their life uh, to Christ in a public way. So just a joy to be able to be a part of that. The famous skeptic David Hume back in the 1700s, one day he was out early one morning and he was making his way down a street in London. He ran into a friend and his friend said, what are you out? What are you doing so early in the morning? And he said, well, I'm on my way to hear George Whitfield, the evangelist, preach. And he said, well, you don't believe a thing that Whitfield says. Why would you do that? He goes, no, I don't, but he does. And I hope if you're here this morning and maybe you don't really know what you believe about some of these things, maybe you hear Lucas's story, maybe you hear some of the songs that we sing and maybe some of the things in the sermon, I hope that you'll at least walk away and go, but they believe it. They believe it. This is real. Uh, this is very real. And these are very real people, very normal people that you'll bump into here this morning, which might be both encouraging and disappointing for some of you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6 this morning, Luke chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 37 through 42. Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 42. I so much appreciated David preaching the last couple of weeks from First Peter, uh, such a great series, and David will be continuing that as he has opportunities to preach, and it was good uh, for me to have a little bit of a break and have some time to work on a few other things. I, I, I do want to let you know that I did have a little bit of time to put together some fresh artwork for you guys, uh, having a little time, so I know you'll be very excited to see that. So Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 42, there's a couple of phrases in here that even if you're only mildly familiar with the Bible, or maybe you engage in conversations with people, and maybe they just know a few things here and there about the scripture, they probably know at least part of some of these verses that we're going to see here. This passage, along with Matthew, contains the famous judge not passage. And as some have pointed out back in the day, John 3.16 was probably the most popular verse just in contemporary culture. People would typically know, if they knew nothing else about the Bible, they might know how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And they would know John 3.16 about God sending his son to die for the sins of humanity. But maybe those have been replaced by this verse. Judge not. But here's kind of how we tend to read it today. We read it like this. Judge not, and we ignore the rest of the context around. This is a popular reading of both Matthew and Luke here. So we have two different accounts of sermons that Jesus preached, and they're very similar. We have what's called the Sermon on the Mount over in Matthew 5 through 7. It's a longer version of what we have here in Luke. In Luke, we have, it's a much shorter edition, but it's very, very similar, and this judging passage is part of the commonality between these. The problem with this modern reading, where we just take a couple of verses that we like and we tend to ignore everything else, is that we typically get it wrong when we do that, if you only take a phrase. And we, are, we understand this, it's intuitive. If you receive an email from somebody, or back in the day when we used to write letters to each other, maybe even by hand, some of you maybe still do that, you don't go to the middle and pick a phrase and say, well, what's the letter about? Well, you grab two words from the middle of the letter. You don't do that. You have to put it in its context. So in Matthew's edition of this passage, 
it does say don't judge, but it also says something about taking the speck, taking the log out of your own eye so that you can see properly to help your neighbor with the speck, the dust in their eye. It also tells them not to cast their pearls before swine. Well, that's a terribly judgy kind of thing to say, isn't it? Who are you calling swine? I, I don't care what culture you're from, that doesn't sound nice. The chapter in Matthew, Matthew 7, it ends with a separation. Depart from me, I never knew you. And so just to grab a couple of words and say this is what it means, it's really, really off. In this passage here that we'll look at this morning, we'll see the exact same thing. We see a few different images that explain what Jesus means by this. So here's how Bible study works. You really have to put things in context. There are traditionally, as we study the Bible, we talk about three steps of Bible, Bible study. We talk about observation. What does the text say? Let's just look at it. What does it say? Interpretation. What does it mean? And then application. What am I supposed to do with this? So three steps. The problem is when you skip the middle part, you usually get it wrong. So follow this incredibly complex flowchart with me. You start with a verse on the bottom left, and there's a shortcut that you might be tempted to take, but I've put up a stop sign because you, you shouldn't go there. If you take the shortcut and you jump straight to application, you probably got it wrong because you're not understanding what's going on in the text. So what do we need to do? We need to put the text in its context and understand what's happening. So that's what we're going to try to do today, is see what is going on in this passage. So I've entitled this, The Seeing Sin, and I think you will see why that is the, the case in just a moment. So let's read it. This is Luke chapter 6, verses 37 down through 42. And just remember, as we're reading this, this is a longer sermon. We're just taking a couple of paragraphs here, but it's a much longer sermon that was given by Jesus and we'll finish that up the next time. Verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say, brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. So we'll take these in three different movements here. Seeing to judge, seeing to lead, and seeing to serve. So I think the idea of seeing is really central to what's going on here. Seeing in order to understand and to make correct, proper judgments. So he says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you'll not be for condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now what is he getting at? judge not. Here's an option. We could read this and say, well, Jesus says, if I don't judge other people, then I will never be judged. So here's what I'll do. I'll just go live however I want to live. I'll steal stuff. I'll make up my own rules. I'll do whatever I want to do. And as long as I'm not judgmental of other people, well, then 
I've got a carve out here. I will not be judged. Now, do we think that's what Jesus is intending here? Obviously, there's no way that that's right. The passage actually goes on in the next section, which we'll look at next time. For no, in verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. So he tells them, you can inspect and you can see the fruit of an individual. So there is discernment that's being practiced here. So what is meant? What's he talking about? I think we all know what he's talking about. He's talking about people who are judgmental, people who have this sort of, as many would say it today, a spirit of judgmentalism. You're constantly making judgments of other people. My guess, I won't ask, I'll ask you to, don't name any names out loud as I ask you this question. If I were to ask you, do you have somebody in your life that you think is a judgmental person? My guess is you probably do. Many of you spent some time with relatives this week. We can talk later. At least somebody comes to mind. I think that is what Jesus is getting at, a judgmental type of person. But let's, just don't, let's don't just put it off on somebody else. We need to wear this ourselves as well. So what is he talking about? Always having a critique, always finding a problem with what you say, the words you use, how you use your time, how you use your money, the places you go, what you buy, what you don't buy, what you eat, what you don't eat. Somebody just always got a little opinion for you. Let me help you out. I think Jesus is getting at that. And he's getting at that too in context. Again, he's constantly locking up with the scribes and the Pharisees. They had a thousand rules about how you should live your life. And so they were constantly nitpicking and judging and being very judgmental over other people. But they were taking their authority and they were lording it over people. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't come across that way at all? He's very kind and gracious and patient with the humble people. Now he stands up and he, and he confronts those who, those who are proud I think what's going on here, it's really a continuation of something he said earlier. Go back up to verse 31. This is what is often referred to as the golden rule in verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Okay, so I think this flows out of that. This judge not, condemn not, forgive, and be forgiven. Here's the question. How would you like someone to treat you in a similar circumstance? All right? That's the question that I think Jesus is trying to tease out here. How would you like to be treated? Now, let's make this just incredibly ground-level practical. You get terrible service at the restaurant that you're entitled to. Excellent service, all of us, right? You get bad service. Put, your shoe, put yourself in the shoes of the server for a moment. Maybe they had a bad day. Maybe you didn't know that two servers called out this evening and they're shorthanded. They didn't cook the food, even though they didn't cook it. It's not right. Maybe they had a hard day. Maybe their car broke down. Maybe they had medical bills. You would want, if somebody was in the position of judging you, you would want someone to back up and try to consider what are the other factors that could be causing this situation. Maybe somebody is short and snippy with you. You don't like their attitude. Maybe they've been in a bad spot lately. Maybe you need to grant 
what I often refer to as favorable interpretations. Can we just slow down, grant favorable interpretations? I've used that phrase many times as I have opportunity to talk to people and counseling, things like that. Favorable interpretations. R.C. Sproul said something very similar. He called it charitable judgments, similar phrase. He said this, the problem is, sadly, the person to whom we most frequently give a charitable judgment is ourselves. We usually reserve best case analysis to evaluate our own activity. I could hear Sproul saying that. We can spin our indiscretions and sins to make them appear virtuous, which is exactly the problem we face as fallen human beings. This is exactly what we do, don't we? We give ourselves favorable interpretations, and we hold everybody else to the highest possible standard. David Zoll wrote in a book uh, called Low Anthropology, he said this. Now, tell me, if, tell me if this strikes a chord with anybody, especially our students maybe that are here this morning. If you do well on an exam, psychologists have observed, you tend to think it's because you are smart or because you studied hard, right? If you do well on the exam, why did you do well? It's because you studied hard, because you're awesome. That's why you did well. If you do badly, why did you do badly? What do you think the consensus is? It's because the exam questions were worded weird or your teacher didn't prepare you well, right? That's how it works. Like, so you, you see what I mean here? We tend to grant ourselves favorable interpretations and we hold everybody else to a standard that we couldn't possibly hold to ourselves. I think that's the heart of what Jesus is getting at. Be careful. Because in the same measure, in the same way that you judge other people, that's going to come back on you. It's just a principle of wisdom. It's how the world works. When somebody gives you, grants you favorable interpretations, when somebody is patient and seeks to understand your situation before they make a judgment, then you are more inclined to give that to other people as well. Why do we judge wrongly? Why do we judge wrongly? I got th three reasons here, and they could, you could expand this list out many, many times more than mine. It, it's this. One is ignorance, because we don't know. I think a lot of the time, we don't know. Maybe you see a homeless person on the side of the street, and you think, well, I'm not helping him because he's got some really nice shoes on. Those are expensive. I know what those cost. What you don't know is the last guy gave him those shoes. You don't know what's going on. You don't have enough information, ignorance. We can sometimes string together a series of events and we can create little narratives in our mind about why people are doing the things that they're doing. They did this because of this and I put this together and this together and we're kind of like the, you know, the crazy detective on one of the shows that's got all the pieces and the string and we're like, I got them figured out. Like, yeah. You might not, actually. You might be completely wrong. We need to be careful with that. Ignorance, not knowing enough information. Confirmation bias, we hear about that a lot. Sometimes we're not actually looking for truth, we're just looking for something to build our case, right? I laugh about this every time, every, every year about this time of year when I watch sports. You know, fan is short for fanatic, right? Um, fans are crazy. And it just amazes me how you can watch the same game with 
you're for team A, you're for team B, you can watch the same play, and otherwise, reasonable human beings can go, this obviously was this, and this obviously was this. Isn't it amazing how we do that? I told you guys about the time that I was, uh, I'm listening to a game on the radio. All right, now, important piece of the puzzle. I'm listening, meaning I can't see the game. And the announcer says, there was, a, there was a good play, and he says, oh, they called holding. And I muttered under my breath, that wasn't holding. And I thought, <laughs> wow. How, how I, I can't even speak to this. But it's, it's scary when you start to think about it. I'm like, if I could, if I could like, be so wrong and so biased on something I'm not even watching and something that like, honestly, in the big picture of life, it doesn't really matter. Like, could I do that with other people as well? Could I be holding out some judgment of this individual? Do I need to just back up a little and say, how would I want that person to consider my situation in my life if they were making a judgment? Now, I'm, I'm coming down hard on this, and I don't want you to get the impression that you can't ever make decisions and you can't ever call things right or wrong. We're not going to we're not, we're not saying that, and we're going to come back to that in just a moment, but just account, always account for what you hope is true, all right? If, if something just seems too good to be true, probably is. If this quote, quote that you found about this person you don't like, politician, whoever, if it just seems too awesome, this is perfect, this is what I knew they were, it's like, you should examine that really carefully before you go and... Third reason we judge improperly, incorrectly sometimes, so ignorance, we just don't know, confirmation bias, we're not actually looking for the truth, we're just looking for something that builds our case. And number three, I would say, is arrogance. Should we even be making a judgment on this? I've grown much more comfortable over the years when people come and ask me questions, maybe it's theological, maybe it's practical, whatever it is, become much more comfortable with saying, I don't know. That's a good question. I may not have an awesome answer to that, but let's think through it together. And I've become much more comfortable with that, and I hope that you are as well. I think coming out of seminary and getting a degree, I think there's a certain, and this is probably true in all of your jobs, you know, so take this principle and apply it to whatever it is that you do in the medical field, or maybe it's law or engineering or whatever it is. You just kind of feel like, I. I, I should know the answer to all of these things, right? Like somebody asked me a legal question, I should be able to answer that, medical question or whatever it is. And I think, theologically speaking, somebody, you, I should know the answer to this. And you, 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 have a, you have a leg up, don't get me wrong, and you can speak to some things, but sometimes it's okay to say, you know what, I'm gonna have to get back to you on that. Let me think through this. This is hard, rather than just coming down, making a snap judgment on something. Imagine yourself 10 years ago, all right? 10 years ago. For some of you, that seems like a very long time ago. For some of you, that seems like not long ago at all. And your feeling about that is directly proportional to your age. So just think through that for a moment. If you think that was a very long time ago, then you're probably older than younger, okay? So think back 10 years ago. Would you make different decisions then than you make now? probably many of us, about one thing or another. Well, add 10 years and, and think about that. In 10 years from now, you're probably going to look back at yourself now and go, yeah, I got a little more insight into that. So 
my encouragement then is relax, step back, let's just think about what we're doing, who we are, and not be the types of judgmental people like the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus is going after. Here's the thing too. We can get caught in a loop on this. We're judgmental of judgmental people. Isn't that ironic? Um, my favorite, this is my favorite example of this. I've mentioned it before. Planet Fitness is my favorite example of this. Some of you have been in Planet Fitness. It has on the wall, real big, the judgment-free zone. Okay, that's fine. It also has something called the lunk alarm. Okay, if you've never been in Planet Fitness, the lunk alarm, it's an actual like buzzer, true story, actual thing. And if somebody's lifting weights that are too heavy, they're grunting, they're, you know, they're just kind of extra at the gym, then you can go ring the lunk alarm because you don't, we don't like lunks in Planet Fitness because it's a judgment-free zone. <laughs> so we have made a judgment in the judgment-free zone that we don't like the way that they work out. Um, actually, I had a friend, and he was lifting pretty heavy uh, one day, and he actually had somebody come by and said, you're making people uncomfortable. You have too much weight on the bar. Um, and he didn't care at all. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? We get caught in this loop of judgmentalism. So Jesus is discouraging that type of thing. Judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Then let's move along. Verse 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. Now, what is this all about? He's actually using an image from the market when he talks about this good measure, pressed down, shaken, running over. He's talking about a, like a bag of grain, something like this. So it's gonna be fair. It's gonna be a full bag of grain. It's gonna be you know, filled to the brim and filling over. This is the type of of response you're going to get when you're not this judgmental, harsh, condemning type of person. Now, some have taken this first to mean, see, if you just act like a good Christian, you're gonna get all kinds of money and wealth and material things. That is not what Jesus is talking about at all here. Not at all. In fact, Paul would take a, one of these principles and he would apply it over in 1 Corinthians 6. And it's a different context. He's talking about in the context of lawsuits within the church. He said you shouldn't sue one another. Um, and he, he even goes so far as to say this, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So you shouldn't be engaging in this as Christian brothers and sisters. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He said it would be better for you to have loss of income, loss of capital, than to drag somebody else, another believer, through this process. He said, you should just cut your losses in that case. So obviously, I don't think Jesus is here saying that you're going to receive this massive wealth and blessing. That's not his point. Not his point in the material sense, at least. Jesus is saying, treat people with fairness, understanding, and that's how you're going to be treated as well. We've mentioned before, this is an upside-down kingdom that Jesus is building. This is a kingdom where people don't assert themselves. It's a bottom-up kingdom. It's a kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. It's a kingdom where the strong become meek and serve others. It's a servant leadership type of kingdom. It's a totally different type of kingdom that Jesus is building. So seeing to judge, seeing to lead, next part. Verses 39 and 40. So he tells a parable, and again, I think 
keeping this all in context here, it becomes a little bit more clear what he's talking about. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? All of these refer to seeing, the seeing sin, as we've called it. So seeing to lead, these blind guides. The obvious inference here, speaking to about, at least, to the scribes and Pharisees, is that you guys are blind. You have all your rules, but you're totally missing this new thing, this new work that the Messiah, Jesus, is coming to set up. They're blind. And the parable, of course, is pretty self-evident, what he's saying. They're blind, and so they can't see where they're going. Now, we've adopted this phrase in our world today. You'll hear people say sometimes, the blind leading the blind. You'll hear that all the time. I'm sure you've probably used it as well. I see this sometimes, and I'm sure you do as well. If you've ever done group travel, this is a perfect illustration of the blind lead the blind. If you just hop off the plane with a group and one person acts like they know what they're doing, what happens? Everybody, little lemmings, like everybody's just in a line following them wherever they want to go. This, in a sense, is the blind leading the blind. Somebody's just acting like they know what they're doing and everybody else tends to follow. This is what was going on in the first century. The scribes and the Pharisees, they had a bunch of rules. They had asserted themselves and everybody's just following because they don't know any better. Same principle is next. A disciple's not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Now, it, may not, it may seem like he's changing the subject, but he's not. He's not. You see, the blind person, in verse 39, the blind are leading the blind. Verse 40, the disciple is not above his teacher. What he's doing is he's shifting slightly his focus, and he's saying the pupil is like the blind person, right? You don't hold kids responsible in the same level as you do adults, right? Because adults should know better. The pupil isn't expected to have discernment like the teacher, so the blind lead the blind, and in effect, it's sort of like the pupil is blind, the student is blind. They don't know what they're being taught. In fact, it says, this is a scary phrase, when the disciple is grown, he becomes like the teacher. Disciples grow up and they imitate the one that they've been learning from. Anybody that has kids knows how true this is, right? You ever hear your kids and they use a word? You're like, where did they hear that word? Like, well, I know where they heard that word. I don't know if you know where they heard that word. Or they say certain phrases, they pick up certain mannerisms, they copy you. I believe I've told you this story before, but it's so funny and it fits right here. When Kate was a little one, toddler, my wife was pregnant with Jacob, and we noticed, we didn't know what was going on for a little while, but we noticed Kate walking around the house with her belly poked out, <laughs> walking around. And we, we, we didn't know what was happening. We're like, what is she doing? And then we figured out and we would say, hey, walk like mommy. And it was just like a little toy. And she would just you know, poke her belly out and go strutting around the house. Like, she just thought, hey, that's what I see mom doing, so I'm gonna give it a run. And you see this all the time. Your kids pick up the characteristics, the attitudes, if you're a mom and your kid comes to you and they got a little cut on the finger 
If you're calm and chill about it, they'll be calm and chill about it. If you freak out and call medevac, they're going to they're gonna lose their minds as well. You, they're picking up, they're drawing off of you. You become like your teacher. Now, those are all in the sort of funny, you know, fun sort of way. But we, this is also very true spiritually. This is why it's so important that you know who's influencing you and who's teaching you doctrine, who's teaching you the Bible. It's interesting in the next section here, he's gonna talk about how do you know if somebody is a good teacher or a bad teacher? Well, you see the fruit of their lives. It's what they teach, yes, but it's also the character of their lives. And this is common throughout the New Testament. Those who have ungodly ambition, like in 3 John 9 and 10, they're just thirsty and hungry for material things. They wanna be rich, 2 Peter 2 sensuality and base desires in Romans 16 and 2 Peter 2. So when you're considering a podcast to listen to, sermons, books to read, examine not only what they're teaching, but have an idea about the person as well. That's an indicator. Not only what they're teaching, that's of course important. Students become like their teachers. As somebody who teaches regularly, this is a fearful thing for us to come to grips with. I hear sometimes, I've been here a little while now, um, coming up on 11 years in January, I hear some of the phrases that I use sometimes. I hear it coming out in people. You hear it reflected back. And for better or worse, your thumbprints are on it after a little while. Your kids as well. And so there's a responsibility here that teachers have to their pupils in this context. There's also a responsibility to understand who you are influencing and who you're being influenced by. They're always watching. There's a little bit more application, I think, to be had here. It's a new world that we live in now with what we could call media ecology, right? The environment, environment of media that we live in. TikTok, Twitter, the meta platforms like Facebook and Instagram. We live in a world that's quick, social media, all these influencers now. It's how we get our news. We love little videos. Books are too slow. Email's too slow. Everything's got to be fast, fast, fast. And you become like what you worship. You become like those things. They have a certain catechism to them as well. They're shaping us, all of us, in some real way. And I'm just saying, we need to know because you're going to become like your teachers. So the question, who's teaching you? And what are they teaching you? Because you're becoming like them, whether you recognize it and realize it or not. It's how it works. Lastly, seeing to judge, seeing to lead, and then seeing to serve. Now notice what happens here. Verse 41, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? That's probably a pretty good translation. There's a little speck, and it's in your eye, which is really annoying, but then there's this log in the other person's eye, and the person with the log in their eye is saying, hey, I can help you looks something like this. Guy says, I have something in my eye, and he's very uncomfortable, as you can tell, he's touching his eye. The other guy says, hey, I can help you with that, and he's got a massive log coming out of his eye. That's the picture that Jesus is painting. How ridiculous. I think Jesus is actually using humor at this point. Notice they're the same substance. The speck could be sawdust, 
the same substance, but it's much, much larger, much bigger problem. So this judge not idea, let's come back to that for a moment. Notice what he says. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? But then he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck that's in your brother's eye. So he doesn't say you can't be concerned about the speck. He's saying you need to do a little sweeping around your own porch first. Examine yourself first, and then you're in position to help your brother deal with the speck that's in their eye. He doesn't say it's not real. So this idea of judgment, it's not a universal decree that you can never practice discernment or make a decision. He's speaking to those who have a spirit of judgmentalism who are hypocrites in reality. Nobody wants to hear it from those hypocrites. This might leave you in a strange spot thinking about, well, how do I do that? Because we all feel this tension, I believe. And here's the reality. I've said this before. I'm sure I'll say it again. The text is always better than the sermon. And the sermon is always better than the life of the one preaching it. It's just how it works. If you've ever taught a Bible lesson, you know how this is. The text is better than the sermon. The sermon is better than the life of the one preaching it. And so you're left, we often are left with this tension. What am I supposed to do with this in honesty before the Lord? Here's how the tension gets resolved. This is the gospel message in a nutshell. This is what we believe here as a church family. We believe that God is the creator of all things. He's holy, he's just, he's right. He's worthy of our worship. He graciously created this world for us to live in. He created humans, created us with dignity, value in his image. But man rebelled and sinned against God. That creates a separation because you have holy God and sinful man and they are separate from each other. God can't have sinful people in his presence. So what do we do with that? We need the one who didn't sin, as Dalton led us to think about this morning, the man Christ Jesus, the one who didn't sin. He resolves attention. Fully God, fully man, together, one person, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, rose from the dead, defeated death, and now he invites all people to follow him. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Become a follower of Jesus. That's what he calls on us to do. Jesus is the only one that never lived with this tension of my message is better than my life. That's the one preaching this message here to us this morning. He's the only one. You're not getting to heaven on your own merits. You're not good enough. That's what the point of the gospel is. And that's why we need desperately Christ's righteousness and goodness to us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for an opportunity to be together this morning, to look at a text like this that just has so much practical information and implications for us. I pray that we wouldn't take the shortcut of immediately jumping to some light or trivial application or make it maybe even a worse mistake of listening to this and considering how it should apply to everyone else other than our own selves. Lord, I pray that we would consider who you are, consider what you've done, consider ourselves before you. Lord, we pray that you would continue to make us more and more like Christ. Maybe there's some who need to hear the gospel message again this morning.
to be reminded of your goodness and your greatness and who you are. Show them their need for Christ today. We pray in Christ's name, amen.